0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Therefore you should pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks be to God. All right. Like I told you, we're in the Lord's Prayer. We are diving deep into this model prayer that Jesus has given us. Now, last week I mentioned that this prayer actually is the middle of three practices that Jesus expects his followers to do. So we're going to be talking more about those practices as we go about this year, the practice of giving for the poor, of almsgiving, and the practice of fasting, both of which Jesus expected his followers to continue. Um, but we are going to focus for the next coming weeks on this model prayer that Jesus gave us. And today on this one verse, in fact, only on half of the verse, Jesus tells us, therefore, you should pray like this. He doesn't tell us this is um, he doesn't tell us this is just something that we, we should build on. He's telling us these are the words you should pray. I'm giving you the prayer to pray. Like I mentioned last week. If you don't know how to pray, if you don't know what to pray, this is where we begin with the very words of Jesus, just praying these words. And sometimes we don't do that because we're afraid of them becoming dry and dull to us. But that's putting too much that's putting too much on ourselves. <laughs> just the fact of praying the words of Jesus, praying the prayer that he gave us, even when we don't feel it is powerful. Because God is in it. And because this is what our Lord taught us to do. And so I hope that this week, as I challenged you last week, you have been praying the Lord's Prayer. I've tried every morning, upon waking, before doing anything else, certainly before touching a phone, unless I'm checking my blood sugar, before touching my phone, of praying that Lord's Prayer. Praying the words of Jesus. And today we we focus in on the first words. Now, these first words of the prayer... I would gather, I would assume, and I could be wrong about this, you can tell me if I am, but I would assume that most of us who are familiar with the Lord's Prayer kind of take these first words as kind of a prologue. They're almost the words that you just kind of, they're like, they're set up words. They're not really part of the prayer, they're just part of the address to God. It's like saying, dear Evan, right? It's kind of like addressing your prayer. But we don't put a lot of stock into into the substance of these first words. And I would say, if if that's been you, if that's been your attitude, I'm not saying you're you're bad, because that's been my attitude for years. But as I look at this prayer and I consider these words, I've come to a a new appreciation for the depth of what they actually mean, of what they're actually saying, of how they order my life and order my desires. You see, human beings operate on desires. We operate on what we want. Desires run our lives. We don't do anything that we don't absolutely have to do unless we want to do it. There are times when we are forced to do things we don't want to do. But for the most part, our lives are driven, our choices are driven by the things that we desire. The things that we want. Now, there are entire philosophical and religious systems built around the idea that we need to get rid of our desires, or at least most of them. There was a guy named Siddhartha Gautama back in the 500s BC, four or 500s BC. They're not exactly when, sure when he lived. He was, he was a very wealthy young man. And the story goes that Siddhartha was out walking and as he was walking, he came across people who were suffering. Ultimately, he came across this dead body. And and as he walked and he pondered about the suffering of life, his conclusion was that desire is the source and root of all human suffering, and particularly disordered desires, desires for the wrong stuff or desires that are too strong. And so Siddhartha came up with what was called the Four Laws, and and he he developed this philosophical system that we call Buddhism today. Siddhartha would meditate, and he became the Enlightened One, the Buddha. Now, Buddhism is not really a religion. If you ask a Buddhist, they'll tell you it's not really a religion. Buddhism is more a, a philosophy than a religion. There are religious elements to it. But really, it's a philosophy of life that says, desire causes all suffering... And so what we need to do is to rid ourselves as much as we can of desires. To reach nirvana, to become enlightened, and to separate ourselves from desire. So that desire doesn't run our lives. And the truly enlightened person will be detached from the things of the world. And the Bible calls this nonsense. God made us to want. God made us to desire. The problem is not desire in and of itself. You see, Siddhartha was half right, as all of these wrong philosophical systems are. They're half right. That's why people find them attractive, because there's just enough truth in there to draw us in. Unfortunately, they're not rooted in the truth. And so inevitably, they depart from the way that God made us. God made us to want. God made us to desire. The problem is we desire the wrong stuff. Siddhartha was absolutely right about that. Our disordered desires are the root of all wrongs in the world. We call that original sin. Adam and Eve in the garden wanting the wrong thing, wanting to make themselves God, wanting more power, wanting more glory. Wanting to rule as God, not as God's vice regents, as copies of God, but wanting to be God themselves. The disordered desires of the human heart have led to every wrong in the world. They've created the fall. Siddhartha was right there. But the, problem, the, the answer is not to get rid of our desires. It's to reorder them to the one we were always intended to desire the most. It's to reorder them and want what we were made to want. And we believe that as a consequence of the fall, as a consequence of sin, we've not only not wanted God, we've actively rejected God. Our problem is that we don't even want to want the right thing. That's what the great Saint Ignatius of Loyola said back in the 1400s, 1500s. When he was writing on desire, he would ask, do you want God? Do you want the right? And if someone, if someone says no, Ignatius' second question is, do you want to want it? Because what we find is a lot of times we don't even want the want. We don't even want the desire to love God. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have wanted God, you have wanted Christ, then you've known you have come short even in your wanting. That there are still things in me that war against God's influence in my life. There are still things in me that war against what Jesus has told me to do, how he's taught me to live. And so I know that even my wanting is deficient. But until we come to the foot of the cross, until we come and give ourselves to Jesus, we don't even want the want. We don't even want the desire to follow Jesus. But God made us to desire him above all things. God made us to desire relationship with him above everything else. It's our desire for God that orders all of our other desires. That's where Siddhartha got it wrong. It's not the elimination of desire. It's ordering our desires in the proper place under our supreme desire for God himself. That's what we're after. That's what the Christian life is about. It's about desiring, wanting God above all other things. And not only wanting that for me in a self-centered, selfish way, but wanting that for everyone, recognizing that the world can only receive true healing, the world can only be made into the place it was intended to always be if we all want the same thing, if we all want God above all. And that's what these words of the prayer do for us at the very beginning They order our desires. They order our lives according to the one desire that matters most for each of us and for us as a family. And that's where we begin. We're going to look at these word by word. Our Father. Jesus begins the prayer, Our Father. Now, notice, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And he begins not with a singular, but a plural. We gotta own this. As American Christians, as American evangelical Christians, we must own that Jesus begins the prayer with a plural Our Father, not my Father. This is not a one to one thing, prayer is communal. Prayer is about the family. Prayer is about us. We pray first together. We pray individually. We pray alone. But even when we pray alone, we join our voices and our prayers to the family of God that's been gathered around Jesus Christ. We never pray alone. You have never uttered a prayer on your own, you've never prayed by yourself. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been filled with God's Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been praying with you every prayer you've ever prayed. You've never prayed by yourself. And when you do pray, you join a chorus of others. God hears no one individually. God hears all of us. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't hear your individual prayer and answer you as you need. But think about the billions of people at any moment around the world who are praying all at the same time. You ever wondered about how God hears us? How in the world can God hear me when there are, I don't know, three billion other Christians in the world, many of whom are praying at any given moment? How does God hear the prayer of millions of people all at once? Well, the first answer is he's God and it's a mystery and that's great. The second answer is, do you know how many of those prayers are addressing the exact same thing? We are praying in a chorus. We are praying together. We're joining our voices with the voices of our brothers and sisters around the world every time we pray. And millions upon millions of them are praying for the same thing. Knocking on the door of God, standing before the throne of God, asking him to intervene in the same way for the same stuff. And that's a beautiful thing. Your prayer is your petition to God joined with millions of other petitioners asking God for the same stuff. That's a wonderful thing. And yet God also hears you. And hears the cry of your heart. Because God is already inside of you if you're a follower of Jesus. His Holy Spirit's already within you, praying with you. Jesus is sitting next to God the Father interceding for you. God hears us in the chorus of all his people and he hears our individual cries as his children. And so Jesus begins the prayer, Our Father. Reminding us of who we are as a part of God's family and reminding us that we are children of God. Now, there's... A lot of people in the world want to believe that we're all children of God. And the offensive thing I have to say right now is, biblically, that's not true. It's not. John 1.12 says, To all who believed on Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, there's a broader sense in which we have to understand this as well. You see, back in the Old Testament, God had adopted the nation of Israel as his children. The image of God as father shows up over and over in the Old Testament, of God as father to the nation of Israel, father to his children. When Jesus comes on the scene, he comes as the king of Israel to constitute a new people of God, to take that, that nation of Israel and make Make a remake it. That's why he calls 12 apostles, the 12 patriarchs of the church, the new Israel that Jesus is putting together. And when Jesus comes as the king of Israel, he is representative of all God's people. So Jesus comes as the literal son of God, the third person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity. Sorry, got my order wrong there. But Jesus comes as the literal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and he comes as the figurative Son of God in representing Israel on the earth. And so when we come and we follow Jesus, we are adopted into Israel, just as all of God's followers throughout history had been. And we become children of God. Just as Israel in the Old Testament was, and just as Jesus is. We become the children of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, adopted into the family of God. Now, it's true God has created everyone who ever lived. It's true that God creates human beings. But until we come and lay ourselves at the foot of the cross, until we come and give our allegiance to King Jesus, our elder brother, we cannot rightly call ourselves children of God. And that sounds like, then, that there are people in the world that God wants to be his children and people who don't want, he doesn't want to be his children. It then sounds like God is saying, these people are favored, these people are not. And God is rejecting some others. And there are theologians who would tell you that's exactly the case. That's not the view that I hold. I hold that God does want everyone to know him. That God truly desires for all people to become his children. That the reason he adopted a family in the first place was so that they could go into all the world and bring the nations to become his family too. So they could expand God's family. So that we truly could all become the children of God. And so the, the beautiful thing about this is that the door to being a child of God is always open. The door to adoption into God's family is always open for everyone all the time. All we must do is put our faith in Jesus. All we have to do is follow Jesus to be adopted in this family and to receive the sonship that Jesus has, to become children of God as he is, adopted into his family. And that is the great commission of the church. The great commission of the followers of Jesus is to go into the world And to help others step through that door and become children of God themselves. To join this family. So Jesus reminds us here right at the beginning of this prayer. That we together are the family of God. Adopted into his family. Made his children. And that our mission in the world is to go and help others do the same. To become children of God. Not to be rejected, but to be adopted as sons and daughters. So Jesus first emphasizes our Father, the family of God, us as the children of God. But then he follows it up with in heaven. He's our Father who is close. We call this the imminence of God. He is there. Right with us all the time. And yet God is in heaven. That is our God inhabits a place. Our God is not creation. Our God is not the air. Our God is not the stuff of the world. We are not pantheists. God exists somewhere that is not right here. God dwells in heaven. There are too many Christians today. People who call themselves followers of Jesus who still buy into the idea that God is present in everything all the time. That God's presence is in the trees and in the grass and in the animals. They've become pseudo-pantheists. They're basically Hindu with a Christian veneer. But our God dwells. Our God is separate from His creation. God is transcendent. That's the big theological term, okay? The first theological term is God is immanent. He's here, He's present with us. But He's not us, and He's not the trees, and He's not the ground, and He's not the air. God is transcendent, He's separate from His creation. And this is such good news for us, that God dwells in glory, in unapproachable holiness and glory. God dwells in splendor. God dwells in heaven where his will is always done perfectly and there's no sin. God dwells in that place that is separate from the earth. And from that place, God can make his purposes done in the world. From that place, God can make sure that what he wants comes about. It is from that place that Jesus came. It is from that place that Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit. It is from heaven. Now, heaven is not someplace in the clouds, in the sky. Heaven is not someplace where people just play harps. It is not this boring existence where you just kind of sit around And do nothing. Heaven is mysterious. The Bible doesn't actually teach us much about heaven. Doesn't actually say a lot about the how heaven is made up. What we know about heaven is that the place God lives, and it's the place where His will is done perfectly, and it is the place of glory and of splendor and of sinlessness which is everything we could ever want. Heaven is the place where our dreams come true if our desire is for God. God dwells in heaven, which exists out there. We don't know where there is. It's just the other, the realm where God is. And that's the place we want to come to bear on Earth, and that's where we're going to go next week. For now, we need to know that our God, our Father, who is imminent, is also transcendent and glorified and dwells in heaven. that God is not the creation, but is the Creator. And finally, we come to this phrase, your name be honored as holy. Now, I love the new translations of this. The the newer versions of the Bible, the newer translations of the Bible will often say something along these lines, your name be honored as holy. Now, traditionally in the King James and in the way that we've prayed it, we've prayed it, prayed it? Um, The way that we've prayed it, um, we say holy is your name, which is a statement about God. And that's true. But I think these, these newer translations are closer to what the Greek intended, closer to what the original intended, which is, this is not just a statement about God, this is a petition to God. Your name be honored as holy. That is saying, your name is holy, but my prayer is that it would be honored as holy in my life and in the world around me. And this is where we get to the ordering of our desires. God is holy. Holy whether we acknowledge it or not. God is holy whether we say so or not, whether we recognize it or not. God is holy. Now I've said it before, holy is really just an adjective for God. Everything that God is, is holy. Holiness is all that God is. All of the attributes of God, all of the characteristics of God, everything that God is, is holy. Holy. The things on earth that are holy are holy only to the extent that they reflect God's character and they are used for his purposes. That's what holy means on earth. It means that God is other. God is separate from us. God is his own thing. But this petition is about honoring the holiness of God In my life and in the world. This is the first petition of the prayer. This is why this is not just a prologue. This is not just an address to God. This is the first petition of the prayer. And this ought to be the first petition of every Christian life. God, would you be honored as holy? God, would you be honored for who you are? God, would you be honored for your character? Let me, Lord, live a life that honors your holiness. And God, I pray that all of my neighbors and my community and my world would honor your name in the same way. That you would be honored as holy. That the world would recognize who you are and your great character. This is the desire that should be at the base of every Christian request. This is where we begin in prayer because this orders everything else. We cannot pray wrongly if we begin by wanting the holiness and honor of God. And so that's why Jesus begins this way. Your name be honored as holy. And Holiness is something that is difficult for a lot of us because it feels old fashioned. It feels like something, a relic from the past. Holiness feels like legalism to a lot of us. A lot of us have have heard from holiness preachers or holiness teachers or holiness traditions, and we've heard about Silly rules like women, you got to wear ankle length skirts all the time and wear your hair up in a bun and men, you have to be dressed a certain way all the time. And, and we've got rules and regulations for everything about where you can go and where you can't go and what movies you can see, what music you can listen to and what kind of car you can drive and all that jazz. And so some of us growing up in the church, we've associated holiness with this list of Rules with a list of of things you can and cannot do, things you can and cannot drink, ways you can and cannot dress, what you can and cannot listen to or watch. And that's what holiness has meant for us. And so we've rejected it. And we don't even want to talk about holiness because we assume it only means a list of rules. That's because we've misunderstood holiness. We haven't understood holy as the character of God. We've understood holy as moral purity, according to a certain group's definition. But when we begin to understand holiness as simply the character of God, who God is, lived out through us and lived out through his people, we can reclaim holiness for what scripture always intended for it to be. Holiness is Christ-likeness. Holiness is being like Jesus. We ought to be people who hunger and thirst for holiness who long to be holy as God is holy, to be holy as Jesus is holy. This is the very command of God himself who says, be holy as I am holy. That is, walk in my footsteps. Take on my character. Live my way. Be like me in your relationships and in your desires and in the things that you do. That's what holiness is. To long for holiness is simply to long to be like Jesus in every area of life. It's to long to be like our good, self-giving God in every area of life. And yes, that'll mean abstaining from some things. That'll also mean doing other things. Like caring for our neighbors. Seeking out the lost sheep, the one who's struggling, the one who can't make ends meet. Seeking out the one who longs to know God and yet keeps making these self-destructive choices. It'll mean making personal decisions about how I live my life, how I use my money, how I take care of the people that God has given me to care for, how I love my kids and my friends and my family. There's not an area of our life that seeking holiness will not touch. There's not an area of our lives that longing to be holy won't transform. Now that's where we begin in prayer. If we begin by ordering our desires, we cannot pray selfishly. We cannot seek simply the baubles and the treasures that we hope God will give us if we say the right words. If we begin by ordering our desire for God's holiness above everything, we won't go wrong. And if we put that before us, as we learn to pray and order our desires in prayer and we do truly what the Apostle Paul told us, to pray without ceasing, to pray continually, and we are constantly reordered for our desires to seek holiness above everything, then we will allow that to affect and inform every decision that we make. Now, this is a petition. This is a request. The thing is, we can't drum up this desire in ourselves. We can't just wake up and say, I'm going to desire holiness now. I'm going to want holiness today. We can't approach this like we do some diets and be like, okay, here's my cheat day, and then tomorrow I'm really going to go after holiness. There's no like party that ends our life of sin before we begin a life of holiness. This is a desire that God works within us. This is a desire that as we submit ourselves to Jesus and we allow God's Holy Spirit to transform us, will come to fruition, will bubble up within us. And so what Jesus is praying for here, I think, I could be wrong, but I think one of the things, one of the, one of the impacts of this prayer at the beginning, is that I'm praying for the desire to be holy. I'm asking God simply to give me the desire to honor you as holy. Give me that desire, God. Place within me the burning desire to honor you with everything I am. Because if I'm honest, most of the time I don't have that desire. And it's not that I'm anti the glory of God or I'm anti holiness. It's that I just don't think about it. I don't think what's the holy decision to make in this situation or circumstance. I think what's going to benefit me and what's going to benefit my family and what's going to be the most influential. But maybe it's not the most holy choice. And so this prayer orders our desires by giving us the language to ask for the desire for God's holiness. By giving us the language to ask to want God. Because I don't want God so much. The desire for God and for his holiness is not first and foremost in my mind. I've got a billion other things running through my mind and a billion other concerns running through my mind. And I allow them to overwhelm me because I'm not centered on God's holiness. Because I'm not centered on Jesus and becoming like him in my decision making. And so Jesus gives us the language here in his grace, not to shame us for not desiring holiness, but to give us the language to ask for the desire to be holy as God is holy. To ask for the longing to honor God in everything we do. And so if you're tempted right now to leave with guilt because you haven't desired holiness in everything, then I want to reorient us. And I want to challenge you this week, just as last week the challenge was to pray the Lord's Prayer when you wake up. I want you to continue that. But this week, in your prayers, rather than beginning by asking for things, rather than beginning with petitions, begin simply by asking for the desire to honor God. That's how Jesus begins his prayer. And we can't do better than Jesus begin simply by asking God, would you give me the desire to honor you? God, give me the longing to honor you. And so let's pray that now together. God, God, give us as your family confidence in who we are as your children, confidence in your nearness, all at your transcendence, and the desire To reflect your holiness and glory in everything that we do. God, place within us, Holy Spirit, work deep within us a desire to be holy as God is holy. To live out godly character in every decision that we make. To submit all that we do to you first before we make the decisions of our lives. To ask in every circumstance, what is the holy thing to do? Not the most advantageous, but the most holy. God, give us the desire for you above everything and order all of our other desires according to that want. The want to be holy as you are holy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.